Yes, God. That's our prayer, that you would breathe on our hearts. Your word says that when you created the first people, it says that you breathe life into them. I pray that you would breathe life into us. On every corner of our heart, Lord. Even the, the parts that we can't see, parts that we're fully aware of, the parts that we are consciously or unconsciously hiding from you, breathe on those parts too. Call every part of who we are out of the shadows into your glorious light. Breathe peace. Breathe healing. Breathe freedom. And give us grace to receive it. We pray these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen and amen. Thank you so much. Well, today, like Melinda said, we're kicking off a new series called The Radical Minimum. How many of you set big goals for 2018? Anybody like you set like big reaching goals? Okay, good. A handful of you. How many of you set small goals for 2018? Like you've learned the hard way to kind of like babysit. Good, good. How many of you have given up any hope of setting any goals for 2018? Okay, we got a handful of you as well. Why, why do we give up on our goals? Uh, the truth is because uh, we set stretch goals because that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, the reason that we walk away from them is because they're hard. And a goal requires one of two things. It requires either that we change to meet that goal or we change the goal to meet us. And I don't know about you, but more often than not, I get like six days into a resolution. I'm like, oh, this is difficult. I don't know that I really wanted to do this after all. And one of my favorite authors, Erwin Raphael McManus, in his book, Unstoppable Force, says this. He goes, either our standards should change or our actions should change. We tend to keep lowering the bar until we clear it. And the question that we want to ask together is, what will be the bar for those of us at Central Wesleyan when it comes to following Jesus? What will be the minimum practices that we will pursue together so that we could be people who reflect God's heart in all that we think, say, and do? I've got a son, uh, he's eight years old, he's an aspiring uh, football star, and for his birthday, he goes, Dad, I want an agility ladder. I want to practice on an agility ladder so I can work on my speed, work on my moves. He doesn't want an agility ladder so he can be, win a trophy for agility ladder excellence. He wants an agility ladder so he can become a better athlete. And so many of us, we say, I think I know who I want to be. We don't know how to get there. And the scriptures and church tradition have given us a set of practices, some people call them disciplines, that are our spiritual version of the agility ladder. We don't do the disciplines so we can be awesome at disciplines. We do the disciplines so that we can create space in our schedules, in our hearts, and in our spirits for God to do what only God can do. So with, with, with that in mind, that we're trying an experiment, we're calling it the 28 days of radical minimum. Somebody said if you do something 21 days in a row, you make it a habit. 
So we thought four weeks to learn four spiritual practices was a nice round number. So if you haven't already joined this Facebook group, there are close to almost 300 people across the state who have already done it. So if you want to, you can pull out your phone now, go on Facebook, find 28 Days of Radical Minimum, or you can go online, centralwesleyan.org slash 28 days and sign up. You're going to get prompts every day over the course of these four weeks so that we can grow in four areas together. Prayer, scripture engagement, rest, or the understanding of Sabbath, and then finally community. And you see that we've got like these, on our graphic, we've got these icons that go with all of them. And the goal is that we would spend 10 minutes a day in prayer, five minutes a day in scripture, one day a week or a part of a day every week where you would intentionally unplug from something, technology, work, TV, certain forms of activity, just so you could rest and recharge with God. And then community, that you would spend at least one communal meal with people that you want to like talking about the things that matter. That's where we want to go for there. So go online, sign up for that. Today is actually day one. The challenge for day one is that you would read Acts chapter one. Acts has 28 chapters. We're looking at 28 days. It's a nice round number. We plan the whole thing out, I promise. So go online and sign up for that. Today we're going to be looking at prayer. And our icon for prayer is this little Wi-Fi signal. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn with us to Matthew chapter 6. Verses 5 through 15, if you've got one of our Bibles, the page number is 970. Here's what we see in this passage. Jesus says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, Then your father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth, just like it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. Your sins. Now, this prayer is not just something that we find in an ancient book. It was part of an actual sermon given by an actual person in an actual place. And I just want to remind you, for those of you who haven't heard, I'm having an opportunity to lead a group of men from Central Wesleyan actually to the region where Jesus would have taught this prayer. And we're doing our kind of inaugural Central Men's Holy Land trip. The dates are uh, May 17th to 26th. If you haven't already signed up, you can do that. I cannot show you the exact hill where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, but I can show you a general idea of where that might have happened. What I love about Jesus' disciples, they come to him very candidly and they say, Lord, all of our friends, they're pretty good prayers. We want to know how to pray too. And you have to remember, they're asking this question in an ancient Jewish context. And in that time, people would have prayed at least twice a day, at dawn and at dusk. And if they were really good, they would have prayed in the middle of the day as well. And there were actual specific prayers 
that people prayed in that time. In fact, one of those prayers is called the Jewish Kaddish. It reads like this. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole household of Israel speedily and at a near time. So that was a prayer that some people prayed twice a day in Jesus' time. What do you see in that prayer that reminds you of what Jesus prayed in his prayer? There's some overlap, is there not? There's a hallowed be his great name. We say, oh, let's pray according to your will. May he establish his kingdom. There are some similarities. There's some overlap. What is not in this prayer that is in Jesus' prayer? The opening address. The way that Jesus starts his prayer is very simple. It's very humble. It's very intimate. He starts with this line. Our Father. Our Father. Now, for those of you who are parents, you know that being a parent is hard. Like, even on the days where you feel like you're crushing it, you get to the end and realize that you missed something. Does that ever happen to you as a parent? You're like, oh, I think I did it. And then you talk to your kid and they're like, no, I didn't get that from you at all. And you're like, oh, dang it. I was close. Close but misses. This happened to me yesterday. We were here for this amazing event that uh, Renata, our kids' hope director, and Ethan, the d- director of our children's ministries, put on together. It was amazing. So much fun. Great activities for, uh, that were planned for hundreds of kids. And my kids, they came and they kind of screwed around for a little bit and they said, we want to go on a hayride. Well, I ran into Renata in the lobby and she's like, hey, just, just FYI, the last hayride leaves in two minutes. Well, the problem was the hayride leaves from this entrance and all my kids' gear is over at this entrance. So we're sprinting across the lobby, all four of us. I'm like, come on, get on your boots, get on your coats, get on your hats, we gotta catch this hayride. So three out of the four actually follow the instructions. But as Josiah, my only son, is running across the lobby, he's like, yeah, I forgot my boots. I'm like, you're fine, just wear your shoes. So he gets on... He gets on the hayride. My other daughter, Grace, had gone through another door because we all have a hard time listening to the same set of instructions. <laughs> and now she's crying because we're going to miss the hayride. She's not in the service, is she? Okay. Um, and so we start running around the back of the building so that we can intercept said wagon before it actually gets too far down the road. And we do. And so we like leap onto the wagon without the stairs. Everybody sits down. I'm like, whoo, made it. Good. Like dad for the win moment, right? Got everybody on the wagon. Happy fun times for all. Until the end of the hayride, when we unload, and sure enough, my son is getting off the wagon in his socks. I'm like, what happened? Where are your boots? He's like, you told me not to worry about my boots. I was like, that's because I made the completely illogical assumption that you had other footwear. Serenity now. I was like, oh, I missed it. Like, I was so close. I forgot shoes. It's four degrees outside. My son is in his socks. Oh, man. Sometimes, like, when you're a parent, you're doing everything you know how to do, like, for the love of God, and you miss very basic details. When Jesus says to pray, our Father, you know what the good news is? He knows all of the details. God never forgets the boots. And Jesus reminds us of such when he says, pray pray this way, pray our Father in heaven. And then he says this line in the very same message, later on in the same Sermon on the Mount, he goes, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? He goes, even the worst dad on a good day would desire good things for his children. Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? 
course not. If you then, even though you are evil compared to God, even though you are twisted and brokenhearted, you know how to give good gifts to your children. If that's true, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Dads, even those of us who feel like we get it wrong more often than not, my guess is that you, you've had some glorious moments where you have done some absolutely illogical things in the name of love for your children. It's happened to a friend of mine this week. He's got two middle school daughters and his wife goes to work early, so it's his job to kind of to get them on the bus and off to school. And on this one particular day, one of his daughters said, hey, I've got a, I've got a friend. Um, I want to decorate her locker for her birthday. And earlier in the week, she had purchased a gift for her. So dad jumps into the minivan in his pajama pants at 652, drives both daughters to the middle school. They've got a bag of balloons. They start decorating the locker and he drives off. He gets home and gets a text around 708 from his daughter saying, hey, I forgot the gift that I was going to give to my friend. And now the dad knows how much this birthday moment meant to the daughter. So he finds the gift, jumps in the van, and drives back to the school. It is now 7.20. He calls his daughter so that they can arrange this so she can come out to the car and pick up the gift and bring it back in. There's no answer. Now, he could go into the main office and drop the gift off, but there's a problem. He's still in his red flannel, Dr. Seuss, how the Grinch stole Christmas pajama pants. He cannot get out of the van. He might see someone he knows, or worse yet, see his actual children and their friends. So he calls again, no answer. He texts, no response. Class begins in 10 minutes. We are running out of time. He takes a deep breath, parks the van, jettisons his dignity and runs to the main office as fast as he can. He drops the gift off at the front office, letting them know that his daughter should pick it up. He avoids making eye contact with anybody on the way out. Dads, hooray for you. You give your time, your money, your energy, and yes, your dignity to provide the best possible life for your children. Do you believe that that's what God does for you? Do you believe that that's what God does for you? And some of us say, I have, I have a hard time believing that that's what God does for me. Because I've asked God for things that I haven't received. And one very wise author said, not every prayer gets answered the way that we want it, but because God is a father, every gift he gives is good. Every gift he gives is good. It is no accident that when Jesus teaches his disciples, and by extension us to pray, he says, start with these two words, our Father. Hallowed be your name. So if we're gonna use the, the Wi-Fi metaphor for prayer today, I would like to argue that humility is the login for prayer. Like if you're trying to get on somebody's Wi-Fi network, you have to give a login name. And so the very beginning of the process is, is that I humble myself, that I say, if God's name is hallowed, 
If God's name is holy, if God's name is exalted, it means that God is above me. He's my father in heaven. He's got a perspective that I don't have. God sees things that I can't see. He stands above all of creation. The ancient posture for prayer was to stand, and over the years, we've morphed it to include kneeling and bowing. Why? Because we want to say with our bodies that prayer starts with humility. We say, you are God, and I'm not. If prayer is like a Wi-Fi network, humility is the means by which we begin logging on. Once we understand who God is, we acknowledge who we are, and that's that we are not God. And we accept and we embrace our role as his beloved children in his creation. So we start with our Father, who's in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If humility is the log on, then I would argue that surrender is the password for prayer. That we can only begin a productive conversation with God when we, at, from the get-go, we submit to his righteousness, to his lordship, to his majesty, to his understanding of how the universe should work. Surrender says, God, I'm ready for whatever you want in me and around me and through me. Let your kingdom come to my home, to my business, to our nation and around the world. Now that, that's... That's a poetic and a powerful statement. Let your kingdom come. But if we don't know what the kingdom is and what it means and what it's supposed to look like when it shows up, those are, those are only empty words. Richard Foster says that when we pray, we need to pray with spiritual imagination. So when you pray this prayer, God, let your kingdom come to these areas of my life, I want you to think creatively and say, what would the kingdom look like if it burst into my sixth grade homeroom? What would the kingdom look like as I was walking the halls of my plant? What does the kingdom look like when I walk from my locker to the court for a basketball game? What does the kingdom look like in that? Well, here are a few suggestions. When God's kingdom comes, he always draws positive attention to himself. Then when the kingdom happens, attention and energy gets focused back to God. Now, we live in a self-promoting, jersey-popping culture where people are always like, look at me. Look at what I can do. The kingdom demotes self, not in a negative way, but it appropriates God in a positive way. So when the kingdom comes, people's energy gets drawn to God that wasn't there before. When the kingdom comes, the well-being of people everywhere is elevated. The kingdom does not elevate one gender, one race, one class above another. The kingdom levels the playing field and its rising tide lifts all boats. Why? Because every person is created in the image of God and he is not my father, he is our father. When the kingdom comes, it brings dignity to those on the margins. It brings honor to those on the fringes, no matter who they are or what they're country of residence might be. When the kingdom comes, hope, healing, freedom, and life break through in unexpected places. So when we pray, 
Even for the most challenging situations in our lives, we should pray this way. God, when you look at this situation, what do you see? God, when you look at my business, what do you see? What is your desire? What is your intent? What is your hope for us this quarter? And how could that break through today in the decisions that I make? When we pray, God, let your kingdom come, we need to pray it at every portion of our day. God, I'm at the grocery store. Let your kingdom come to me in this moment. Let your kingdom come at soccer practice. Let your kingdom come in my statistics class. Let your kingdom come in all of its goodness when we're feeding a colic-ridden child at 2.45 in the morning. Let your kingdom come then. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread. Last time I checked, we have four different kinds of bread in our house. We've got Kelly's Ezekiel bread. We've got Grace's lunch rolls. We've got Naomi's whole wheat bread. And we've got the cornbread that Kelly made for chili on Monday. Lots of bread. When Jesus gave this prayer, there were only two bread options for people. Bread or no bread. It was either I am going to survive or I'm going to starve. Those were the only options. So when people prayed, give me this day my daily bread, it wasn't like this sweet, kind formality. It was this plea that you wouldn't die. Give me this day my daily bread. It was laced with urgency and intensity because if bread did not come through, bad things were going to happen. I don't know if you've ever missed a meal on purpose or on accident, but if I miss like one or two, I get shaky and cranky and unpleasant. And people are like, Lord, please give Steve bread. This is not working out for any of us. So when you hear this line, bread, I want you to think about this. A lot of times we get on a Wi-Fi network, we're trying to download something. We're trying to receive something. Prayer, bread is the download of prayer. When I got a strong signal, I can get the things that I need in that moment. Now, most of us are not facing an immediate caloric shortfall. By the grace of God, I would, I would venture that most of us who are in this room or those of us who are joining us online are not facing the immediate threat of not enough food. But we are all facing challenges of our own, are we not? For somebody who's facing a chronic illness, the daily bread that you need is hope. Timothy Keller once said that the greatest temptation of all is the temptation to despair. And you're saying, Lord, if you do not give me hope to face down this day and then the next day, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it. Some of us are struggling with a wayward child. We've done everything that we know how to do to point them in the right direction, but for whatever reason, they just keep pulling against it over and over and over again. And we're saying, Lord, I need you to give me peace. Because the anxiety is choking the very life out of me. I can't breathe. Will you give me peace? And if you don't give me peace today, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Some of you are in a high stakes battle for your own well-being, physical, spiritual, psychological. You're in, a, you're in your recovery battle and you come out swinging every single day to maintain and defend your sobriety. 
and you say, Jesus, if you don't give me self-control today, if you don't give me the ability to rein in my urges and shake off my demons, I might not end this day on my feet. Please, please, please give me self-control. I've learned the most about prayer from many of my friends in recovery. They say, I start my day on my knees, begging God for the grace to make it through, and I end my day on my knees, thanking God for the grace that I'm still standing. When you pray, give me this day my daily bread, you're saying, Lord, give me the thing that I need that I can't create on my own. We sung it this morning. We can't sing it enough. I need you, Lord, I need you. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'd like to argue that if we're gonna push this Wi-Fi analogy, mercy is the speed of prayer. Sometimes when I travel, Internationally, we do this Holy Land trip with friends. Sometimes the only place you can get Wi-Fi is in the lobby. And when there are 28 dudes all trying to talk to their families on FaceTime at the same time, the signal gets jammed. And it's hard because there's so, there's so much energy competing for the same signal. I would like to argue that there is no greater cause of interference between us and God than the existence of unresolved conflict and unchecked anger. My friend Donna Winship says that forgiveness is the oxygen of the kingdom of God. She goes, if you can't forgive, you can't breathe. And Jesus says here, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some scholars say that in this line might be the most dangerous two letters in all of the New Testament, as. Forgive us our debts as. We also have forgiven our debtors. What's the implication here? The implication is that the people who are praying have already forgiven their debtors. Before they even come to God, they made a deci conscious decision to forgive people who had done them wrong. Have you ever noticed that when somebody owes you money, like they have a debt to you, you are in power over them? Anybody ever had like a loan held over? Like they, they use that debt to hold you hostage? Like you had a well-meaning family member who's like, oh, I love you, I'm gonna do you a favor. And then you realize that I was not a favor at all. That, that, that was, that was uh, indentured servanthood is what that was. And sometimes you notice that like if, you, if, somebody owes, if somebody owes you money and you see them spending money on things that they don't need when they could be paying you back, what does that do to you? A debt means that somebody's in power over somebody else. And when I constantly recount the debt that others owe me spiritually, relationally, psychologically, when, I, when I'm reminded of my ledger sheet and see that you owe me a deficit, guess who I get to be in your life? I get to be God. I get to be in a power position over you. Like if we're gonna be honest, I'll go first. I unfortunately have a really amazing memory when it comes to people who owe me. I can tell you who has done me wrong. 
I can give you their names. I'll tell you what they did and when they did it and what it cost me. And on my bad days, I realize that I'm holding that over them. And in a spirit of self-righteous judgment, I just stand there with my arms crossed. I'm like, I'll just, I'll wait. I will wait for you to apologize and do right by me. How many of us have been waiting for an apology for a couple months that we never got? Don't raise your hand. How many of you have been waiting for an apology for a year? It hasn't come. How many of you have been waiting one for a couple decades? Is it possible that those words are not forthcoming? Is it possible that that resentment has a stranglehold on your life? and is choking out your ability to give and receive kindness and goodness and joy. Jesus says, you don't get to ask for mercy to flow in until you are ready for mercy to flow out. And the kingdom of God is mercy through and through and through. Have you noticed that when Jesus says, teaches them how to pray, Jesus does not end his prayer with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He ends his prayer with, for if you don't forgive others, you cannot be forgiven. I don't know about you, that is a verse that makes me woefully uncomfortable. And have you noticed that nobody has turned that verse and made it into a bracelet or a locker poster? People don't like that one. Why did Jesus say it? Because he means it and because it's true. Why do we pray this way? We pray so that we forgive others, not because they deserve it, but so that we can be set free and so that we can be in a posture where we could receive the very mercy of God. Now, let me offer this caveat. Just because we forgive people does not mean that we, we trust them. And if somebody has hurt you, especially if somebody has hurt you or is hurting you physically, it's a threat to your physical safety or the safety of children that are under your care. Get out and get out now. And if you need resources to get to safety, you let us know. We'll do everything within our power to get you in an environment that is safe. You can forgive that person in time in God's process. It doesn't mean that you subject yourself to harm. Jesus is crystal clear. Mercy cannot flow into us when mercy does not flow out of us. Richard Foster says, most of us don't pray because prayer requires change and we don't want to change. If you know in your gut that you're experiencing a block, that your connection with God is stalled out because of this, then, then fix it. And if the only prayer that you pray with us over the next 28 days is, God, give me grace to forgive person X for offense B, then it will be worth it because you will be different on the other side of this month than you would have been if you held on to it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts in the same manner that we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think that like cover, protection is the firewall for prayer. 
I'll never forget my firearms training class when I was a volunteer police chaplain for a municipality in suburban Detroit. Uh, they were smart enough not to arm any of the chaplains. They gave us Bibles and badges. That was enough. But they did take us through this, this class, and they said, hey, if things ever go left, you need to know how to respond. And they taught us a very critical distinction in the middle of a firefight. They said, if, if guns start unloading, here's what you need to know. There's a difference between concealment and cover. Concealment is you try to hide behind something. Now, it could mean me trying to hide behind this staging or hide behind a leafy bush or you hide behind a sheet of drywall. The bad guys can't see you, but if they were to fire rounds in that general direction, they could still find their way into your body. It is not enough to be hidden. They said what you want, ideally, like if you can't, if you're exposed and all you can get is concealment, get concealment. They're like, but what you really want is cover. If you can hide behind a brick wall, if you can hide behind a dumpster, if you can hide behind a vehicle, hide behind that. And they go, the difference between cover and concealments might be the difference between life and death. And when we ask, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one, what am I praying for? I'm praying not that God would hide me. I'm praying that God would defend me. Cover, the prayer for cover is spiritual protection. Say, so God, will you protect me, body, mind, and spirit, from the attempts of the evil one to derail my walk with you? Now, there's a problem here. When Jesus says, pray to be delivered from the evil one, he doesn't mean God promises you a life that is devoid of all risk and harm. Church history tells us that 10 out of the 12 people who listened to Jesus teach this prayer knowingly gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. They chose to be martyred for their faith. So somewhere along the way, they understood that praying for protection from the evil one was not the same as praying that they would never face physical harm. The scriptures are full of people who lost their lives in the name of faith. In fact, one of Jesus' early followers and writer of a good chunk of the New Testament, the apostle Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How do they face danger with such great confidence? because they know that nobody can touch them spiritually. Jesus said, don't fear the person who can harm your body. Fear the one who would threaten your soul. And here's what many of us don't understand. Losing my life is not the worst thing that could ever happen to me. If the scriptures are true, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is that I would be separated from God in this life or the next. Praying for protection of the evil one means that I am experiencing communion with God in every possible way, in every possible moment. And then we kind of tag this traditional line onto the end of the prayer. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We started it with an address, our Father who is in heaven, and we ended it with a nod back to that same sentiment. God, it's your kingdom, it's your power, it's your glory. The agenda is yours. The ability is yours. The attention is yours. It's not about me today. He wants us to end our prayer that way. So if you have struggled with your prayer life, or if you hit a bump, or if you're in a rut, or if you've never done it before, consider using this outline for our 28-day challenge. Pray for humility. Pray for surrender. Pray for bread. Pray for mercy. Pray for cover. Five. In theory, if you spent two minutes praying or thinking or just listening to God's heart on all five of those, that's it. You did it. You did 10 minutes. And if a thousand adults at Central 
prayed for 10 minutes a day over the course of a year, it comes to 60,000 prayer hours. That's a lot. What might we look like then? What kind of people would we be? What kind of things would we care about individually and collectively that we don't care or think about now? Some friends of mine at a church across the lake, suburban Chicago, Willow Creek, introduced this challenge for their congregation a couple years ago. They called it the chair time. They said, we want everybody who calls our church home to spend 15 minutes in chair time every single day. And what it was is that you would have 15 minutes in a designated chair in your home where you'd spend five minutes in scripture and 10 minutes in prayer. So for this 28-day challenge, we're having you walk through the book of Acts with us, Acts chapter one, today's day one, you read Acts chapter one today, and before your head hits the pill, you spend 10 minutes in prayer. And for me, I find that I need to do it every day in the same, ta- same time and at the same place. So for me, ideally, I do it at our kitchen table. Why? Because if I have an overstuffed comfy chair, I have an easy time resting. So I, I have to put my feet on the floor, sit up straight, take out my notebook and my journal. I read my Bible on my phone, but I've downloaded a, an app that locks out everything else on my, that gives me a timer that locks everything else out when I have my prayer time. So I can have that available, but I'm not tempted to look at it. So five minutes of scripture, 10 minutes in prayer. Same time, same place. And then when we do it together, it's the same goal. It's not to say, hey, I had a time with God today. It's to say, I created space to hear from the Almighty One. I had room to intentionally tune in to the frequency at which my Father resides. And if we are people who are hearing from God, receiving His gift, and living it out every single day, We get changed in that process and in that 